welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Good evening, and welcome to episode 14 of Want to Hear Something Interesting. I'm your host, Chad Knight. As always, with me is Scott Ahern. Hey, Chad. How's it going? Good. How about you, sir? Not too bad, thanks. So, on this podcast, we're going to cover a topic that is both fascinating and very, very controversial. We are going to talk about aliens. Well, Chad, I know... DACA and illegal immigration and everything has been in the news a lot lately, and it's a very important topic, but it's also very politically charged, and we've never done anything that overt before. No, Are no, you no, sure no, you no, no, start no, no, now? no, not, not illegal aliens. I'm not talking Mexican immigrants or Canadian immigrants or French immigrants. I'm talking aliens. You know, little green men from Mars. Oh, okay. That well, sounds like more fun. Well, actually, we're going to take a look at several ways that aliens from outer space shape our lives. I personally will be talking about three very, what I call, cornerstone cases during this episode. And you, I believe, will be talking about SETI and how alien theories have affected society, ranging from movies to religions and doomsday cults. Yes, indeed. We will also talk about how abduction stories in places like grocery store tabloids can be such a bad influence on a topic so steeped in controversy and belief. So come with us as we talk about aliens. Are they real? So how's it going, sir? Not too badly. How so, about you? What's new? What's new? Nothing really, but you know, it's that time of year again. Beware of the Ides of March. Indeed. So you're our history guy when it comes to this kind of stuff, this this Roman uh, paganistic kind of stuff. What are the Ides of March? The Ides refer to that period in the middle of the month, generally somewhere in the 14th to 16th, um, usually called the 15th of the month. Okay. And it was considered that because it's not the beginning of the month or the end of the month, which is when a lot of pre-Christian cultures considered it auspicious to do things, that it was kind of the downside of the pendulum swing. Okay, so why do we need to beware the Ides of March specifically? Well, the Ides of March is connected through um, one of my favorite writers as an English teacher, William Shakespeare, and the play Julius Caesar. Allegedly, Shakespeare received a prophecy, or not Shakespeare, but Julius Caesar received a prophecy that his death would come on Mar or March 15th. Okay. And... Being somewhat egotistical, he didn't think anybody had the guts to stand up to him, which I suppose technically they didn't. They knifed him in the back initially. <laughs> so, a tu brute. Indeed. All right. So, should we just jump into this? I have a lot of stuff. I think you've got quite a bit of stuff. So, we'll try to keep this around an hour, people, but we might go a little long this time. What a surprise. So, I'm going to start with that, that very essence of the beginning of the whole alien process or the whole alien craze craze in in the united states with the crash near roswell new mexico okay so so now is this the ufo crash or the they're not sure what it was crash 
or the weather balloon that, of course, everybody knew about crashed. Well, and that's just the thing. And we'll get into all those those different topics. Um, actually, and I didn't put much of this in here because I couldn't find a whole lot, but supposedly that that crash there was actually two, the, two different ships crashing into them to each other. There was one that dropped near Roswell, New Mexico, and then supposedly another one some 200 miles away was found somewhere in um, Arizona. Now, we don't hear a whole lot about that other one. No, I, I don't think I've ever heard of that one. And actually, I only it was only a small mention in one of the articles I read. But supposedly the same kind of cover-up happened there as well. They so, must have done it better then. <laughs> they must have, yeah, absolutely. But let's get started here. So, an unidentified flying object crashed on a ranch northwest... Or, yeah, northwest of Roswell, New Mexico, sometime during the first week of July 1947. Rancher W.W. Mac Brazell said later he found debris from the crash as he and the son of Floyd and Loretta Proctor rode their horses out to check on sheep after a fierce thunderstorm the night before. Brazell said as they rode along, he began to notice unusual pieces of what seemed to be metal debris scattered over a large area. Upon further inspection, he said, he saw a shallow trench several hundred feet long and had been gouged into the ground. Brazell said that he was struck by the unusual properties of the debris, and after dragging large pieces of it to a shed, he took some of it over to show the Proctors. Mrs. Proctor said she remembers Brazell showing up with the strange material. The Proctors told Brazell he might be holding wreckage from an alien spacecraft. A number of UFO sightings had been reported in the United States that summer or a government project, and that he had, that he should report the incident to Chavez County Sheriff George Wilcox. Brazell drove into Roswell, the county seat, and reported the incident to Wilcox, who reported it to Major Jesse Marcel, intelligence officer for the 509th Bomb Group stationed at Roswell Army Airfield. In their book, A History of UFO Crashes, UF researchers Don Schmidt and Kevin Randall say their research shows military radar had been tracking an unidentified flying object in the skies over southern New Mexico for four days. On the night of July 4, 1947, radar indicated the object had gone down about 30 to 40 miles northwest of Roswell. The debris site was closed for several days while the wreckage was cleared, and Schmidt and Randall say that when Woody and his father tried to locate the area of the crash they had seen, Woody said they were stopped by military personnel who ordered them out of the area. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that if it was just a weather balloon, would the military be like, stay out? Well, part of it might depend on what type of weather balloon it is. Uh, say, for example, it was carrying meteorological equipment. Maybe it had mercury, like in an old mercury thermometer. So yeah, then but, you might have a toxic substance issue. But for days? And this is the 40s now. It's not 2018. True. You know, in the 40s, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they knew mercury wasn't good for you. But what would, would they really think, like, a little splash of mercury on the ground is going to be a big issue? You never know. The other thing is, maybe it wasn't actually a weather balloon, but it was still something hush-hush. Because it's, what did you say, 1948? 47. 47. Yeah. Two years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I would not be surprised if it was some sort of experimental craft or something that went down. But over the years, and the people that have come out to talk about it as the years have gone on, makes that highly unlikely. True. So anyway, 
Schmidt and Randall say Marcel, after receiving the call from Wilcox and subsequent orders from Colonel William Blanchard, 509th Commanding Officer, went to investigate Brazell's report. Marcel and Captain Sheridan Cavett, Senior Counterintelligence Corps agent, followed the rancher off-road to his place. They spent the night there, and Marcel inspected a large piece of debris Brazell had dragged from the pasture. Monday morning, July 7th, Marcel took his first step onto the debris field. According to Marcel, the debris was strewn over a wide area, I guess maybe three-quarters of a mile long and a few hundred feet wide. Scattered in the debris were small bits of metal that Marcel held a cigarette light or two to see if it would burn. Along with the metal, Marcel described weightless I-beam-like structures that were three-eighths inch by one-quarter inch, none of them very long, that would neither bend nor break. Some of these I-beams had indecipherable characters along the length, in two colors. Marcel also described metal debris, the thickness of tinfoil that was indestructible. Okay, you've worked with tinfoil before. Yes, it's I very cover destructible. My hand with it all the time. Yes. You cover your head with it. Nice. No ham. Oh, your ham. When I when I slow roast a ham, <laughs> I cover it with tinfoil. And how easy is it to poke through that? Uh, ridiculously easy. I often have to use an extra sheet because I've ripped the first one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, under hypnosis conducted by Dr. John Watkins in May 1990, Jesse Marcel Jr. remembered being awakened by his father that night and following him outside to help carry in a large box filled with debris. Once inside, they emptied the contents of the debris onto the kitchen floor. Jesse Jr. described the lead foil and the I-beams. Under hypnosis, he recalled the writing on the I-beams as purple, strange, never saw anything like it, different geometric shapes, leaves, and circles. Under questioning... He said the symbols were shiny purple and they were small. There were many separate figures. This too under hypnosis. Marcel Sr. was saying it was a flying saucer. I asked him what a flying saucer is. I don't know what a flying saucer is. It's a ship. Dad's excited. I don't know why this kid needed to be put under hypnosis to come up with these. Well, if we're looking at the time lapse, there's the possibility of forgetting or being influenced by the cultural perspective of it. It's, for example, whenever police are questioning eyewitnesses, you have multiple eyewitnesses, you always separate them as quickly as you can so that they can't talk to each other. Right, because, so the story is more pure. Well, yes, because as you talk to each other, you kind the human brain just kind of fills in potential gaps in memory with what other people say about the incident. Okay. So... Let's move on now. Uh, of course, as everybody knows, that there were reports that bodies were taken from the wreckage. Yes. So, Glenn Dennis, a young mortician working at Ballard Funeral Home, received some curious calls one afternoon from the RAAF morgue. The base's mortuary officer was trying to get a hold of somewhat, some small, hermetically sealed coffins and also wanted to know how to preserve bodies that had been exposed to the elements for a few days and avoid contaminating the tissue. Dennis later said that evening he drove to the base hospital, where he saw large pieces of wreckage with strange engraving on one of the pieces sticking out of the back of a military ambulance. He entered the hospital and was visiting with a nurse he knew when suddenly he was threatened by military police and forced to leave. The next day, Dennis met with the nurse who told him about the bodies discovered with the wreckage and drew pictures of them on a prescription pad. Within a few days, she was transferred to England her whereabouts remain unknown. It's the military. Yes. They're going to put you wherever they want you. Mm-hmm. Now, she probably wasn't supposed to be talking about this. Mm-hmm. So they moved her. Right. 
this this whole line of her whereabouts remain unknown. I'm guessing if we tried really hard, we could have probably figured out where she went. Sure, because you could possibly make an open records request. You just need her name. Um, you could look at personnel transfers from Roswell Army Air Force Base to whatever base she went to. In well, England. and that's the funny thing about this. Um, as much as I like the idea of, of extraterrestrials, and I'm not going to lie, I do. I think it's a neat concept. I think it's a neat thing. Everything I read about this interaction, everything talks about this interaction. None of them named this nurse. Correct. So I'm like, eh. you know, that's one of those things where I get where the detractors are like, I don't know how legit this is. Mm-hmm. You need to verify your sources. Now, in journalism, there's an old tradition, and it's very valuable and very important, of protecting your sources. But for something like this, and, and there have been cases where reporters have been subpoenaed to reveal their sources, and when they refuse, they're found in contempt of court and thrown in jail. Yeah. But for scholarly research, for academic pursuits, you cannot have anonymous sources. It, it doesn't work. There's exactly. no credibility to it. Exactly. And I get that some scientists that... I know there are scientists out there that study this phenomena, as it's considered, but won't put their name on it because it's it's suicide. It's political suicide. Or not political suicide. Academic suicide. Academic. Well, yeah, just their, mm-hmm. their whole career is just shot if they do. Right. But now this is where this all starts getting really interesting because... At 11 a.m. on July 8, 1947, Lieutenant Walter Hout, RAAF Public Information Officer, finished a press release Blanchard had ordered for him to write, stating that the wreckage of a crashed disc had been recovered. He gave copies to the two radio stations and both of the local newspapers. By 2.26 p.m., that's very, very precise, (laughs) The story was on the Associated Press Wire. The Army Air Forces here today announce a flying disc has been found. As calls began to pour into the base from all over the world, Lieutenant Robert Shirky watched as MPs carried loaded wreckage into or onto a C-54 from the 1st Transport Unit. To get a better look, Shirky stepped around Colonel Blanchard, who was irritated with all the calls coming into the base. Blanchard decided to travel out to the debris field and left instructions that he'd gone on leave so basically uh, the next day right. they they put out this press release saying mm-hmm. we've got it we've got a we've got a flying saucer we've got a flying disc whatever you want to call it so then headquarters gets involved so blanchard had sent marcel to fort worth army airfield later it's now called carswell air force base to report to brigadier general roger m ramey commanding officer of the eighth air force Marcel told Hot years later that he'd taken some of the debris into Ramsey's office, or I'm sorry, Ramey's office, to show him what he had found. The material was displayed on Ramey's desk for the general when he returned. Upon his return, Ramey wanted to see the exact location of the debris field. So he and Marcel went to the map room down the hall, but when they returned, the wreckage that had been placed on the desk was gone, and a weather balloon was spread out on the floor. Major Charles A. Cashan took the now-famous photo of Marcel with the weather balloon in Ramey's office. We've all seen the picture. Yep. It was then reported that Ramey recognized the remains as a part of a weather balloon. Brigadier General Thomas Dubois, the chief of staff of the 8th Air Force, said it was a cover story. The whole balloon was part of it. 
this there that was the part of the story where we were told to give the public end news and that was it later that afternoon hutt's original press release was rescinded and an officer from the base retrieved all copies from the radio stations and newspaper offices the next day july 9th a second press release was issued stating that the 509th bomb group had mistakenly identified a weather balloon as wreckage of a flying saucer uh teacher i have a question yes (laughs) (laughs) i mean really okay i get i don't know how you could confuse the two a weather balloon is a big metallic looking balloon Yes, it it would have been fabric, would have been metallicized fabric, probably right. um, with aluminum. And so it, as such, it would have been heat and flame retardant. So if they had attempted to light it on fire with like a Zippo lighter or something, it wouldn't have burned. But it would have been flexible. It would have right. been... And you could have, you could have taken it and you could have cut it and tore yeah. it and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But I'm guessing a weather balloon, even if it crashes and burns let's say is not going to leave that long of a wreckage no trail especially not with that much solid pieces right so on july 9th as reports went out that the crashed object was actually a weather balloon cleanup crews were busily cleaning the debris as the wreckage was brought to the base it was crated and stored in a hangar back in town walt whitmore and lynn strickland saw their friend mac brazel who was being escorted to the Roswell Daily Record by three military officers. He ignored Whitmore and Strickland, which was not at all like Mac, and once he got to the Roswell Daily Record offices, he changed his story. He now claimed to have found the debris on June 14th. Brazell also mentioned that he'd found a weather observation devices on two other occasions, but what he found this time was no weather balloon. The Las Vegas Review-Journal, along with dozens of other newspapers, carried the AP story. Reports of a flying saucer whizzing through the sky fell off sharply today as the Army and Navy began to concentrate campaign to stop the rumors. The story also reported the AAF headquartered, headquarters in Washington had, quote, delivered a blistering rebuke to officers at Roswell, unquote. The military has tried to convince the news media from that day forward that the object near Roswell was nothing more than a weather balloon. And, of course, today they don't even admit that there was a crash near Roswell. Correct. So this has always been an intriguing story to me. Uh, from from my early days of getting into what some people might consider strange things. Okay. But not Stranger Things, which is a really good series on Netflix. <laughs> I've seen the first <laughs> season, but I have not had a chance to watch the second yet. Nor have I. Okay. Fair enough. Then we're not going to ruin anything. Yep. Uh, but anyway... It's always intrigued me that how you would make that mistake of, and this is the real sticking point for me, if it's a weather balloon that went down, how do they mistake that for a crashed ship? Whether alien or otherwise, you know, I would have been more likely to believe the the Army if they had said an experimental aircraft went down. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, something to that effect. Or, you know... Bob Jones was out flying his, you know, I don't, I don't know what they had at the time, but, you know, his, his fighter jet and it went down. I would be more likely to believe that than, oh, we mistaked a weather balloon for a flying saucer. Right. So what's your thoughts on this this incident? Um, well, like you, I, I've always been fascinated by the concept of life beyond Earth. Mm-hmm. And... I'm fairly certain that 
it wasn't a weather balloon, if for no other reason than the length of time and the vehemence with which the government has claimed it was. Right. It's a case of me thinks the government doth protest too much. I hear you. It's one of those, they've been working so hard to sell us this story that some part of me instinctively and reflexively says they're lying to me. But is that maybe <laughs> part of their campaign to get us ready to learn about aliens being out there? You know, I have read that people will say that, well, the government does that because it makes us question and research more. And therefore, as a whole, they are getting us ready for first contact. Okay. Now, actually, they took an element of that. Are you familiar with the movie Stargate and then the spinoff TV series no, Stargate? No, I'm not, actually. I've, I mean, I've heard of them, but I've never... Okay. The basic premise behind Stargate and then the spinoff series is that the Egyptian periods were actually landing pads for alien starships. Okay. But... In the series, one of the things they do, because they, they find this device, it's actually a giant ring made out of some alien metal, and they call it the Stargate because it opens wormholes from Earth to other planets that you can actually just walk through. Oh, okay. During the series, the Air Force decides to let a television crew come in and film some of the stuff in the, secret, the super secret base and use it as the premise for a TV series. Okay. Because they, and when some of the, the people are arguing, why are we letting them see all of this stuff? The general in charge of the program says, plausible deniability. Because then if anything about the actual program leaks out, we can spin it that people are getting it confused with the television show. And the public will say, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. Okay, fair enough. All right, so let's move on to the next case. Now, the next case I'm going to talk about is Betty and Barney Hill. Who? Betty and Barney Hill. You've never heard of this? I have not, actually. Okay, Betty and Barney Hill um, were a mixed-race couple okay. in New Hampshire in the 60s. Okay. And uh, we'll get into it a little more, but uh, they are the first They are the first abduction story that was really brought to the forefront. Okay. So, many early researchers into the mystery of UFOs had distinctive lines of belief. It is in the realm of possibility that someone could see and report a UFO. But it is impossible that the alien beings flying the UFO would interact with humans, and certainly not take them against their will. This line of distinction would forever disappear because of one flagship case of alien abduction, the Betty and Barney Hill encounter. Their journey into the unknown began in New Hampshire in September 1961 and would forever change the course of ufology. So the Hills were an interracial couple. Barney, a 39-year-old black man, worked for the Postal Service, and Betty, a 41-year-old white woman, was a supervisor for the Child Welfare Department. Because of Barney's ulcer problems, the two had embarked on a vacation into Canada. On September 19th, they began their journey back home. At about 10 p.m., Barney, who was driving, saw a star which seemed to move erratically. He told Betty about it, and they both kept tabs on it as they drove along. They were just north of Woodstock, New York, when Barney noticed that the star was moving in a very unusual manner. When they arrived at Indian Head, they stopped their car and got out to have a better look. Using binoculars, Barney zoomed in on what he thought was a star. This was no star. He could make out different colors of lights and see several rows of windows around a flying craft. 
The object moved closer, and now Barney could actually see people inside the ship. Was this strange flying object being piloted by humans? The next thing the Hills recalled was being frightened by the unusual flying object and the occupants inside of it. Barney scurried back to the car where Betty was waiting. They jumped into the car and raced down the highway. Looking for the object, they found it was gone. It was now gone. As they drove on, they began to hear a beeping sound. Once, then again. Although they had only been driving a couple of minutes, they were 35 miles down the road. That's very common in abduction stories. Mm-hmm. Lose track of time, lose track of distance, those kind of things. Um, in fact, quick story about this is I was driving... Uh, for work, sometimes I travel quite a bit. I'll travel. I'll travel long distances, and I was driving home from New Jersey. Okay. And I decided to make it a one-day trip. Yeah, that's probably not the greatest idea. In the no, world. it probably wasn't. But it was a holiday weekend. I wanted to get home. Okay. Kind of stay, you know. So, <laughs> it was it was really weird because at this point in my life, I was really into doing the research on this kind of stuff. You know, it was one of it was one of those topics that whenever I had a free moment. You know, I was out looking up new stuff. So so I remember crossing the state line from Illinois to Wisconsin. Okay. The next thing I remember, I'm in Stevens Point. And it freaked me out because I pulled off the, you know, it was like 2 in the morning. I pulled off the highway and I'm like kind of freaking out because I'm like, you know, and then I'm like checking times. I'm like, okay, I want to cross the border at this time. Okay, that checks out. You know, all this stuff. You know, and I called, I called Nikki, and I'm like, holy crap. And, and you know, she's like, just, she's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm, I'm on Highway 10 right now. She's like, just go grab a soda, go grab something. You know, get up, walk around a little bit. And in my case, do I think I was abducted by aliens? No, I think I had what they call road hypnosis. Right. Where you're still alert enough to drive, mm-hmm. but you just kind of get into your own little. Zone. Zone. I've actually had that happen. When I was in college, I was living in Ripon, Wisconsin. Okay. And for a couple of years, a couple of nights a month, I would go down to Madison and I'd be on stage in a theater production. Okay. So I'd work all day, Saturday during the day at the bar that I was working at. And then I'd grab a bite to eat, drive down to Madison, which is about hour and a half, two hour drive. Okay. I'd be on stage... For the performance that evening, and then we'd go out to grab breakfast afterwards. So I'm driving home at like 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's it was Highway 151. It was a straight shot yep. until I got almost to Fond du Lac. And you just get into your zone. And I remember a couple of times I'd suddenly jerk back to full focus because deer ran across the road or I saw taillights in front of me stopped. Or something. Yeah, that'll pull you out. Because I've done I've done road hypnosis more than once, and a and a bright flash of red light mm-hmm. will bring you out of it real quick. But so anyway, so they are 35 miles down the road. So Betty and Barney finally arrived home safely. After seeing the UFO, the rest of their trip home had been uneventful. They were tired from their journey and immediately went to bed. When Betty awoke the next day, she telephoned Janet, her sister, and told her about the strange object they had seen. Janet urged her to call Pease Air Force Base and tell them what she and Barney had seen. After hearing Betty's report, Major Paul W. Henderson told her the UFO was also confirmed by our radar. Okay. Okay. So we move on. So at least the hills were not seeing things, and they were trying to put the incident behind them. But soon Betty began to have nightmares. In her dreams, she would see her and her husband being physically forced into some type of craft. 
Before long, two writers heard about the Hill story and contacted them. The Hills, with the aid of the writers, compiled a time chart of the events of September 19th. There could be no doubt that the couple had lost about two hours of time somewhere along the way. As news of the UFO sighting became more commonplace, the Hills were forced to hide from reporters as much as possible. Because of the missing time element and the desire to know what, if anything, had happened during that time, they decided to contact a psychiatrist. They decided on Boston psychiatrist and neurologist Dr. Benjamin Simon. Well known in his field, he would come to play an important role in the Hill abduction story. His suggestion for treatment was regressive hypnosis, okay. which when it comes to alien abduction, we hear a lot about. And basically what that is, is they, they, they hypnotize you and they work you back in time. Right. So, which would hopefully unlock the memories of the two missing hours of time. His sessions began with Betty and soon Barney followed. After six months of treatment, it was Simon's opinion that the Hills had been abducted and taken aboard an unknown craft. Regressive hypnosis, a controversial treatment, is often used to unlock lost memories. It has been used in a number of other alien abduction cases, including the Bluff Ledge abduction and the Allagash abductions. The problem with regressive uh, hypnosis is people are very open to suggestion. Yes. And that's why a lot of the detractors will poo-poo regressive uh, hypnosis. Right, and that's why hypnosis in general... Um, for example, eyewitness testimony is generally considered inadmissible in court. Right. Because it's too easily contaminated. Okay. So, some of the memories that were uncovered from the hills included their automobile had stalled on the road, the UFO had landed in the middle of the road, and alien beings came to their car, carrying both Betty and Barney to the UFO. They were subjected to various medical and scientific tests, before the aliens released them, they were hypnotized and ordered to keep their capture a secret. During the intensive regression sessions, the Hills would describe their captors as bald-headed alien beings, about five foot tall, with grayish skin, pear-shaped heads, and slanting cat-like eyes. This description very much described what would become known as the Greys. Yes. Now a standard description for the small beings with large heads, small mouths, and little or no ears, and hairless. Also, details were released about the actual procedures performed on the hills. Both physical and mental experiments were conducted. Samples were taken to their, of their skin, hair, and nails. Betty had gynecological testing, and Barney reluctantly revealed that sperm samples were taken from him. The Betty and Barney Hill case is still studied and discussed today. It is the alien abduction case to which all others are compared and judged. So, a few things about this. One, a respected doctor of neuro neurology and psychiatry. psychiatry agrees with them, uh, has done the work and, and says, yeah, this, this really happened. They never cashed in on it. You know, to me, that's a big sign that somebody's making something up, mm -hmm. you know, is when they cash in on it. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the next case that I'm going to talk about, but for this case, it just seems like these two people just kind of got in the middle of something and, you know, it was part of who they became. They didn't really, they didn't cash in on it. They didn't really, they didn't want to talk to reporters and do that kind of stuff. They just wanted their lives to move on. Right. Now, I want to interject a, a little bit with Devil's Advocate. Absolutely. Okay. So they describe seeing this flying craft with multicolored lights and windows through which they could see beings moving around. Okay. 
I don't know if you've ever watched planes as they're flying, but almost all planes will have a red light at the end of one wing and a green light at the end of the other wing. Yeah. And I believe it's specifically that the red has to be on one side and the green has to be on the other side yeah, so that you can like, know what direction it's going. It's kind of like boats where you got to have a light on the front of it and it, each side has to be a specific color. Right. Yep. So if you've got, say, maybe a small Cessna, which would be able to fly at lower speeds, at lower altitudes, and potentially would have been able to land on the highway. So you, uh, with the binoculars, you'd easily have been able to see into the um, windows. Right. And now for the beeping sound, I really can't explain that unless possibly the plane was having engine trouble and they were radioing, radioing a local airfield and the car radio was picking up some of the static from the plane radio. So, but the the lost time, the 35 miles down the highway in, you know, a few minutes kind of thing. And if it was a Cessna, why would it land and take them on board and do, I mean, that sounds a little weirder than even a spaceship. Yeah, for, for that part, I got nothing. Okay. But I, a lot of people will, will argue, well, there's possible explanations for the environmental factors the lights seeing the windows all of that oh yeah absolutely and now as for the the lost time and moving down the road and now granted it's the middle of the night which usually you don't have crop dusting going on correct but if say for example the plane was having engine trouble and was leaking fuel or something the gas vapors could have caused hallucinations. Yeah, it's a big okay. stretch. It's a really big stretch. <laughs> yeah, they can't see my face out there, but obviously you can. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's one of those it's one of those stories that have stood up to time. Yes. So, I mean, there's a lot of abduction stories that even when you listen to them, you're just like, what? Exactly. Like all of the ones, and a lot of times it gets made fun of in films and TV shows, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah, they pulled me off my tractor and anal probed me. Yeah. You know, and it and it's um and that's one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about when you get to movies is you know, the way that it's it's handled in television. Mm-hmm. Um but, even not not just television, but across media. Yep. I mean, we talked a little bit at the beginning with the tabloids mm-hmm. in the supermarket. I mean how many times have we seen a story while we're waiting in line to check out that I had alien, or Elvis's alien baby right? or yeah. whatever? Exactly. And, you know, they have calmed down over the years. But I remember when I was a, like a kid or an early teenager, it was crazy some of the stuff they put in there. You know, it, it, was, it was. But anyway, let's get on to that third case. And okay. now this third case is the one that has probably got the most controversy around it. But it's always been a very interesting case to me, and that's the Travis Walton abduction. Now, this happened in 1975. So Travis Walton is an American logger who was supposedly abducted by a UFO on November 5th, 1975, while working with a logging crew in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest in Arizona. Walton could not be found, but reappeared after a five-day search. The Walton case received mainstream publicity and remains one of the best-known instances of alleged alien abduction. Now, just what I've read so far, 
compared to the Barney and Betty Hill story, it's completely different because they keep saying alleged. Right. Okay. Now, it is Arizona where, from your first story, we know that supposedly the second craft went down. Correct. So, UFO historian Jerome Clark writes that few abduction reports have generated as much controversy as the Walton's case. It is furthermore one of the very few alien abduction cases with cooperative eyewitnesses, and one of few abduction cases where the time allegedly spent in the custody of alien plays a rather minor role in the overall account. UFO researchers Jenny Randalls and Peter Hogue write that neither before or since has an abduction story begun in the manner related by Walton and his co-workers. Furthermore, the Walton case is singularly singular in that the victim vanished for days on end with police squads out searching. It is an atypical close encounter of the fourth kind. Which bucks the trend so much that it worried some investigators, others defend it staunchly. So, I learned about the Travis Walton abduction through the movie Fire in the Sky. Okay. Have you ever seen that movie? I have not. Okay. As I found out later on, it it is very much not even what happened to him. You know, it was it was made for TV. Right. It was made to be this awesome alien abduction case. Which brings us back to that whole cashing in thing. Exactly. He also wrote a book and uh, he goes around to different conventions now, you know, UFO conventions, and he tells his story. And that's how he makes a living. So, the case began on Wednesday, November 5th, 1975. Then, 22 years old, Walton was employed by Mike Rogers, who had for nine years contracted with the United States Forest Service for various duties. Rogers and Walton were best friends. Walton dated Rogers' sister, Dana, whom he later married. Others on the crew were Ken Peterson, John Goulet, Steve Pierce, Alan Dallas, and Dwayne Smith. They all lived in the town of Snowflake, Arizona. Rogers was hired to thin out scrub brush and undergrowth from a large area near Turkey Springs, Arizona. Just after 6 p.m. on November 5th, Rogers and his crew finished their work for the day and piled into Rogers' truck for the drive back to Snowflake. The crew reported that shortly after beginning the drive home, they saw a bright light from behind a hill. They drove closer and said they saw a large silvery disc hovering above a clearing and shining brightly. It was around 8 feet high and 20 feet in diameter. So we're talking a flying saucer, yes. obviously. Mm-hmm. Rogers stopped the truck and Walton leaped out and ran toward the disc. The others said they shouted at Walton to come back but continued toward the disc. The men in the truck reported that Walton was nearly below the object when the disc began making noises similar to a loud turbine. The disc then began to wobble from side to side, and Walton began to cautiously walk away from the object. Jerome Clark wrote that after Walton moved away from the disc, the others insisted they saw a beam of blue-green light coming from the disc and and struck Walton. Clark went on to write that Walton rose a foot into the air, his arms and legs outstretched, and shot back stiffly some ten feet, all while caught in the glow of the light. His right shoulder hit the earth, and his body sprawled limply over the ground. All right. At this point, his buddies in the truck, they freak out, and they take off. Okay. All right. So at about 7.30 p.m., Peterson called police from Herber, Arizona, near Snowflake. Deputy Sheriff Clark Ellison answered the telephone. Peterson initially reported only that one of the logging crew was missing. Ellison then met the crew at a shopping center. They related the tale to him 
all the men distraught, two of them in tears. And though he somewhat, and though he was somewhat skeptical of the fantastical account, Ellison would rather, later reflect, later reflect that if they were acting, they were awfully good at it. So, the deputy sheriff calls the sheriff. Okay. The sheriff says, "Keep them there until I get there." He shows up um, if about an hour later, and Rogers, the guy's best friend and the boss insisted on returning to the scene immediately to search for Walton with tracking dogs, if possible. No dogs were available, but the police and some of the crew returned to the scene. Crew members Smith, Pierce, and Goulet were too upset to be of much help in a search, so they elected to return to Snowflake and relate the bad news to friends and family. Uh, at the scene, the law enforcement officers became suspicious of the story related by the crew, mainly because there was nothing in the way of physical evidence to back up the account. Makes sense. They're police. They're looking at it from a, you know, uh, you got to have evidence. Right. They're trying to be analytical. They're assessing the scene. If he was thrown back, they should have found, like, a little divot or some grass torn up where his shoulder hit. Things like that. Right. So they, uh, then they start questioning whether, you know, maybe they... Maybe Walton died and they tried to hide the body or they murdered Walton for some reason and they were trying to cover it up. Um, they go and they talk to Walton's mother, who is not overly upset by the whole thing. Okay. She asks a few questions. And so, of course, that sh sheds more questions of what's going on here. Right. If you've just been told that your son has disappeared under strange circumstances... Wouldn't you be a little more concerned? It almost seems like I'm sure their suspicion was that something was up and she knew about it or that Walton had contacted her and said, if you hear something strange about me, don't worry. Right, right. Dwayne, which was his brother, had driven from uh, a city not too far away. He spoke with a man named William H. Spaulding of Ground Saucer Watch. Spaulding suggested that if Walton ever returned... GSW could provide a doctor to examine him in confidence. Spaulding also suggested that if Walton returned, he should save his first urination after returning so it could be tested. Okay. I get it, I guess, from... Mm -hmm. On Monday, November 10th, all of Roger's remaining crew took polygraph examinations administered by Cy Gilson, an Arizona Department of Public Safety's employees. His questions asked if any of the men caused harm to Walton, or knew who had caused Walton harm. If they knew where Walton's body was buried, and if they had told the truth about seeing a UFO. The men all denied harming Walton or knowing who had harmed him, denied knowing where his body was, and insisted they had indeed seen a UFO. Excepting Dallas, who had not completed his exam, thus rendering it invalid. Gilson concluded that all men were truthful, and the exam results were conclusive. Clark quotes from Gilson's official report, These polygraph examinations prove that these five men did see some object they believed to be a UFO, and that Travis Walton was not injured or murdered by any of these men on that Wednesday. Now that's an important distinction, because the, the polygraph won't measure the accuracy of any of the statements. It only measures whether you believe it to be true. Right. And now you spent some time as a police officer. I did. Polygraphs, are they even accepted in the court of law? Not usually. Yeah, because they're they're not they can be fooled. Yes. So but if the UFO was fake, Gilson thought, five of these men had no prior knowledge of it, 
And following the polygraph test, Sheriff Galipsy announced that he accepted the UFO story, saying, there's no doubt they're telling the truth. So once he returned five days later, uh, his brother Dwayne remembered Spaulding's promise of a confidential medical examination. Without having notified authorities of Walton's return, Dwayne drove him to Phoenix, Arizona late Tuesday morning where, he were, where they were to meet Dr. Lester Stewart. The Waltons reported that they were disappointed to learn that Stewart was not a medical doctor, as Spaulding had promised, but a hypnotherapist. Uh, Spaulding and Stewart would later report that the Waltons had stayed with them for over two hours, while the Waltons insist they were at Stewart's office at most 45 minutes, most of which was occupied with trying to determine the nature of Stewart's qualifications. The precise, the precise time spent with Stewart would later become an issue in the case. Among the other telephone calls after news of Walton's return was one from Coral Lazorian of APRO, a civilian UFO research group. She promised Duane she could arrange an examination for Walton by two medical doctors, general practitioner Joseph Saltz and pediatrician Howard Candell at Duane's home. That sounds a little more legit and above board, doesn't it? Yes. Dwayne agreed, and the exam began about 3.30 p.m. Tuesday. The medical examination revealed Walton was essentially in good health, but they did note two unusual features. A small red dot at the crease of Walton's right elbow that was consistent with a hypodermic injection, but the doctors also noted that the spot was not near a vein. And analysis of Walton's urine revealed a lack of ketones. This was unusual, given that if Walton had indeed been gone for five days with little or no food, as he insisted and his weight loss suggested, his body would have begun breaking down fats in order to survive, and this should have led to a very high levels of ketone in his urine. Critics would argue this inconsistency in evidence against Walton's story. Now, being a diabetic, that will happen. Yes. It, it happens one of two ways. Either you don't eat, and your body starts to attack your fat, mm -hmm. or if your blood sugars are too high, it will cause ketones as well. But... Walton would later speculate that he had gotten the mark on his elbow in the course of his logging work. Critics would speculate that Mark showed where Walton or someone else had injected drugs into his system. Then it goes into uh, the story, his story while he was on the, um, on the UFO. And I'm not going to read this word for word because it is about five pages long. <laughs> but basically what it comes down to... So while he's on there, um, like I said, this is this is quite a bit of stuff, so I'm just going to read certain, uh, you know, excerpts. But he said the figures were not human. Walton describes the beings as typical of the so-called greys, which feature in some abduction accounts. Shorter than five feet, and they had bald heads, no hair. Their heads were domed, very large. He said they looked like fetuses. They had large eyes, enormous eyes, almost all brown without much white in them. The creepiest thing about them were those eyes. They just stared through me. Their ears, noses, and mouths seemed real small, but maybe just because the eyes were so huge. He really fixated on, you know, the big eyes. Right. Which, if you've ever seen a depiction of a gray, I get it. Yep. So he went on to talk about the exam room and how he felt like he was being, like he wasn't safe. So he got up off the table and they just kind of watched him. And he had found a vial, and he tried to break it, but it wouldn't break because he was going to make it into, like, a, a knife kind right. of thing. Uh, it wouldn't break. But when he yelled at them to leave, they all left the room and left him there. And then he kind of went around checking through the spacecraft he was on. 
And then um, at one point he had found a room with a chair in the center of the room that had, you know, like the Star Trek touch pads on him. Okay. He sat down in the chair. He heard a noise behind him, and he turned expecting to see more of the creatures. He expecting more of the short, large-eyed creatures, but was pleasantly surprised to see a tall human figure wearing blue coveralls with a glassy helmet. At the time, Walton said he did not realize how odd the man's eyes were, larger than normal and a bright gold color. Walton says he asked the man a number of questions, but the man only grinned and motioned for Walton to follow him. Walton also said that because of the man's helmet, he might not have been that he might have been unable to hear him, so he followed the man down a hallway, which led to a door and a steep ramp down to a large room. Walton describes as similar to an aircraft hangar. Walton says he realized he had just left a disc-shaped craft similar to the one he had seen in the forest just before he had struck by the bluish light, but the craft was perhaps twice as large. In the hangar room, Walton reported seeing other disc-shaped crafts. The man led him to another room containing three more humans, a woman and two men, resembling the helmeted man. These people did not wear helmets, so Walton says he began asking questions of them. They responded with the same dull grin and led him by his arm to a small table. Once he was seated in the table, Walton says he realized the, woman's, the woman held a device like an oxygen mask, which she placed on his face before he could fight back. Walton says he passed out. When he woke again, Walton said he was outside the gas station in Herber, Arizona. One of the dish-shaped craft was hovering just above the highway. After a moment, the craft shot away, and Walton stumbled to the telephone and called his brother-in-law, Grant Neff. He thought that only a few hours had passed. And, of course, we all know... Five days had passed. Right. So then it goes on. He was he was administered a polygraph test by a gentleman, and I'm not sure if I have his first name, but his last name is McCarthy. And no, not that McCarthy. Right. Because <laughs> then he would have been, not only would he have been lying about the alien abduction, he would have been a communist as well. Exactly. So anyway, that polygraph test, the guy said he was he was a liar. He never was abducted. They don't know what he was doing, but he was lying about his experiences. So, in 1978, Walton published The Walton Experience, in which he outlined his own narrative of the event and its aftermath. The same year, Bill Berry published The Ultimate Encounter, in which he argued that various debunkers, especially Kloss, did not make persuasive cases, and that when Walton and other, others alleging similar experiences related events more or less as they believed they had happened. After the initial fervor sub subsided, Walton remained in Snowflake and eventually became the foreman at the, a lumber mill. He married Dana Rogers, and they had several children. Beyond the film, based on his encounter, Walter had occasionally appeared at UFO conventions or on television specials. In 1993, Walton's book was adapted into a film, Fire in the Sky, directed by Robert Lieberman and starring D.B. Sweeney as Travis Walton, or Robert Patrick as Mike Rogers, and Scott McDonald as Walton's brother, Dan Walton. Clark writes the film found moderate success, mixed reviews, and ufologists' complaints about its inaccuracies and exaggerations. Especially inaccurate was the portion of the film dealing with his, with his time on the UFO. It bears almost no resemblance to the original narrative. Screenwriter Tracy Torme even sent letters to many ufologists claiming that the changes were requested by the studio officials and apologizing for making such substantial alterations to Walton's narrative. Walton and Mike Rogers made a few promotional appearances to support the film. They debated Kloss on Larry King Live. At one point, Kloss lost his temper and called Rogers a goddamn liar. In his book, Clark does not offer any background context to explain Kloss's remarks on Larry King Live. So, as much as I love this story, I don't know if I accept it as full fact. Okay. 
Um, just because, A, there, there's the money mm-hmm. part of it. There's the fact that, and now this goes back to the polygraphs, but, and it, and it really goes to the, how ethical this McCarthy was. And in, A, giving the test and what questions he asked and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know, there's just something about this story that kind of feels off. Right. But yet it's one of those cases that's always pointed to. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. What are your thoughts on on what we got here? I'm uncertain. I think one of the things that makes the Walton case perhaps less credible than the other case is the fact that it's just the one abductee, whereas with the earlier case from New Hampshire, we have the husband and wife. And we have... But he's got five cooperating people that saw him... Well, of course, they didn't see them... They didn't see him abducted. They saw him attacked by the the, Mm -hmm. uh, flying saucer. But then to that, I would say, okay, let's take a look at the situation. They've just finished work. They're heading home. They have completed very strenuous physical labor. What's the possibility they've knocked back a few? And the fact that this is the mid-70s out west, what's the possibility that it wasn't just alcohol that they knocked back? Okay. Because, let's face it, if you see something strange hovering in the sky and five of your buddies don't budge, are you really going to dash towards it? I get what you're saying, and in fact, uh, one of the things that came out is that they were, not only were they behind schedule of finishing up this cleanup space, but that they were actually not going to finish in time. Okay. And that they think that maybe this was all put together as a hoax to get out of their contract through the um, act of God Mm -hmm. kind of thing, to get them out of the contract. Well... I get where people are coming from, but this this Mike Rogers had already been working with the um, with the uh, forestry service forestry service for nine years. Mm-hmm. He had two contracts before that he didn't finish, and they still brought him back and hired him. And he never tried to invoke the act of God clause in the contract. So if that's what they were going for, you would think he would have tried to do that, right? And he didn't. But yeah, I <laughs> you know. You know, these are the cases that I wanted to talk about. Now, why don't we get into the stuff that you want to talk about? Because you want to talk more about the influences on society over the cases themselves. Right. So, the first thing I wanted to touch on is something that, whether you agree with their mission or not, everybody agrees that it actually exists. And that's SETI. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yep. So now if you go to their website, which is SETI.org, you find out a lot of um, interesting information about them. Uh, They were, they're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Okay, so they're not out there to make money. Correct. Um, And they were established on Tuesday, November 20th, 1984 in Sacramento, California. Okay. So, and the reason that you can pinpoint the date is because that's when their articles of incorporation as a 501c3 were notarized and officially approved by the government. Okay, fair enough. They're actually developed from a 1971 NASA program 
called Project Cyclops. All right. Now, as a X-Men fan, oh, Project Cyclops, awesome. But it wasn't actually about laser beams or any of that. Darn. Um, Project Cyclops actually arose from the work of Dr. Frank Drake, who in 1961 formulated what's known now as the Drake Equation. Okay. Which basically is a... It's kind of like a rough statistical guess about how many technologically advanced civilizations could exist in the Milky Way galaxy. And it, it deals a lot with okay, looking for what they call the planets in the Goldilocks zone. So could a planet sustain life? Uh, does it have... Can we tell that it has the raw materials to make up life and technology and things like that? So the, the equation wasn't saying there are these many civilizations out there. It was saying, potentially, best guess this would, if there are any, there wouldn't be more than this. Right, and the thing that kind of makes the Drake equation passe now is at that time they thought life had to be carbon-based. Correct. And now they're saying, well, in a world where there's no carbon, it may be silicon-based. Right. Or it may be based in some other thing that we don't even know exists. Correct. So I think that the number that the Drake equation had given us at that time is probably, well, and we know how much larger space is now than it was in six, not that it's any bigger now, but you know what I mean? Right. Our, our, our ability to of, perceive it and catalog it right. is greater now. So anyways, uh, SETI is based in Mountain View, California, which is not too far from San Francisco. Okay. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it uses radio telescopes. Now, radio telescopes are, they're different from what we would normally think of as a telescope in that they're not measuring light. And you don't look through them to see things. Basically, radio telescopes are giant receivers. Yeah, they're big radar dishes that Pretty much. instead of shooting out, Just take in. take in. And they, one of the tools at SETI... Uh, is actually at the Hat Creek Radio Observatory. It's the Allen Telescope Array. Uh, they actually found that, because when they first did it, they tried building bigger and bigger radio telescopes, and then they found they were hitting the point of diminishing returns. But they could get even better results if they built a ton of smaller telescopes. So the Allen Telescope Array is just that. It's a giant collection of smaller dishes but it covers over 13,000 square feet of telescope surface. So it's massive. Okay. If any of you have seen the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. I did her, years ago. Right. Her character is a SETI researcher. Okay. So and it, essentially what the premise of that film is, is that a race, an alien race makes contact through SETI. They... Um, send a signal that's picked up. And what, what the researchers at SETI do is they listen basically to background noise of the galaxy. And they mine it for any patterns that they can detect. Okay. Because you, you get all sorts of hisses and pops and whatnot from solar flares and quasars and supernova and everything. And But all of that is random. A computer can go through it and say, there's no discernible pattern here. I can scrub it. So they, they listen for any type of repetition. And then if they have just a solid repetition, then like, okay, that's a pulsar. 
because it, it's a type of star that gives off regular bursts of radiation and they can zero in on it and look with a regular telescope and say, okay, that signal's coming from a pulsar. It's not a sign of intelligent life. It's right. not a manufactured signal. It's a natural phenomenon. So in contact, the alien race sends information to SETI in order to have them build this device. And you essentially what happens is Jodie Foster climbs into this little capsule and it drops through what appears to be this kind of wormhole generated by the device. And so Jodie Foster drops in and she sees this bright light and then she spends most of the rest of the movie interacting with the alien races. She's got a video camera, she's got a digital voice recorder and everything. And then she gets back into the capsule and they drop her back through the wormhole and comes to the bottom of the device. And she gets out saying, it was great, I learned all this stuff. And then she's like, wait a minute, why hasn't the, the light changed? I was gone for hours, it should be night by now. And everybody around says, you drop straight through. You didn't go anywhere. And she's like, no, I was gone for hours. I've got all this video footage and they, they review the, the camera and it's all static. They listen to the digital voice recorder, all static. So it's kind of interesting. And um, it's really that one of the things I liked about the movie is not only does it faithfully portray what SETI does and how critical they are of their own work, mm -hmm. um, the researchers at, at SETI know that they're in a profession that lots of people would love to rip them to shreds about. Right. Oh, you're looking for the little green men. Yeah. And they're like, we're trying to see if we can find anything. And so far, we haven't found anything. Everything we found that might be something we're able to disprove. Except for the wow. Right. You know, they had the, they had the wow, um, what do they want to call it, transmission or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's only happened once. Right. It's never repeated, so... It's an enigma because they couldn't figure out where it came from, but it's not repeated itself either. Right. And they're upfront with it. They said, hey, we found this, but we've never found it again, so we can't say it's anything. Right. We, and we just know that it was something that we picked up. Yeah, they picked it up, and it was... Wasn't it an Independence Day where they used that as the start of the alien invasion? I think so, yeah. They used the WOW symbol, or the WOW space thing, yep. and it was just... You know, and as much as, and, and I'm kind of switching gears here, but as much as I like those kind of movies, it's not how it's going to happen. You know, it's not how we're going to meet another race, I don't think. I think it's going to be more like in Star Trek where we meet the Vulcans because they're like, wait, what, a, what did you guys do? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. But There's this other intelligent race out there waiting for us to show that we might actually be productive and not just be on the verge of blowing ourselves up all the time. Yeah, so, and I think that's part of it. I don't think we've had contact because we're kind of like the Alabama of the of the universe, you know? <laughs> Nothing against Alabama. It's just, it's a phrase in these parts. Oddly enough, NASA's space camp is in Alabama. Is it? It is. Okay. So Jeff Foxworthy does a little bit with that. He's like, NASA Space Camp is in Alabama. You don't know why, because you know they don't let anybody from there go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what do you got next? Right. Okay, so SETI is at one end 
of the alien phenomenon spectrum. Okay. Uh, it, it's rational, it's scientific, it's verifiable, they're, they're above board and very meticulous about their information. Yep. Not everything from NASA is, however. So I, I ran across an article that talks about a man named Michael Mencken. Okay. He's a, a former technical writer for NASA. Yeah, I've heard the name before. Yes. Um, he invented something called the Thought Screen Helmet. Oh, boy. Yes. Um, basically, it, it's made out of Velostat, which 3M makes. It's kind of a metallicized plastic. So the tinfoil hat. Pretty much. Okay. Uh, he has a public service nonprofit website, www.stopabductions.com. Okay. And apparently the helmet stops aliens from abducting humans because they can't get their mind control raised through the material that it's made of. And so that's the only way that they can abduct people is by taking over their mind and making them walk into the spaceship. So this guy works for NASA. He did. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there's a testimonial from a man named John Locke who claims to have been an alien abductee. Okay. It says, since trying Michael Mencken's helmet, I have not been bothered by alien mind control. Now my thoughts are my own. I have achieved meaningful work and am contributing to society. My life is better than ever before. Thank you, Michael, for the work you are doing to save all humanity. Wow. Yes. Okay. Now, it's things like this that add fuel to the fire of all alien abduction stories are fake. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, now, not all alien stories are alien abduction stories. True. Um, one of the things that I, I looked at when I was getting ready for this was... The impact alien culture, alien phenomenon, whatever you want to call it, has had on terrestrial society. Okay. And one of the, the recurring themes that I ran across is that alien deliverance, if you want to say, or guidance or inspiration, is at the root of a lot of what would be considered fringe religious cults. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of them tend to be doomsday cults that some higher alien race made contact with the chosen one on Earth, informed them that the world was coming to an end, but promising to save this person and a select group of other like-minded individuals. I, I hate to do this to you, and I, I, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder, but that sounds an awful lot like Heaven's Gate. Yes, actually, they're one of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's Heaven's Gate. Um, there's Raelism. Okay. So uh, there's the Universal Industrial Church of the New World Comforter uh, with its galactic light ship. There's the Order of the Solar Temple, which is from Belgium. Uh, most of these religions are founded in California. For Strange. some reason. Strange. Yes, I know. Um, now, the Order of the Solar Temple is actually one of the sadder stories because um, most of the um, people involved initially either were murdered by the leaders of the cult who then committed suicide because the 
date for their deliverance had passed, and the aliens never came back and got them, so they entered into despair. And that that actually happens a lot yeah. in in some of these, is that they believe that the aliens will take their spirits or their minds, but they have to be freed of their terrestrial bodies. Right. So you have mass suicides and things. Yep, unfortunately. Yes. Although, when looking through this, I ran across an interesting quote from someone whose name I'm sure you will associate with aliens and space travel and whatnot. Okay. None other than William Shatner. Okay. So, and it, it says, Babies have big heads, big eyes, and tiny little bodies with tiny little arms and legs. So did the aliens at Roswell. I rest my case. So I think what he's getting at is that perhaps the vehicle, the crashed spaceship or UFO or whatever might have been nothing more than a regular plane with families on board that maybe crashed and they found the bodies of the infants, which being smaller, might have been less likely to get broken up, okay. or especially if they were in, say, a, a child protective seat or something. Yeah, but you would think that... Okay, you got these guys not... Okay, let's let's take the ranchers out of it. Mm-hmm. You have these army guys. Right. You would think they'd know what a baby looks like. Entirely possible. You know, it, it Although seems... you did mention earlier that one of the abductees described the aliens as looking like fetuses. True. Maybe it's not a cover-up of alien life. Maybe it was a cover-up of early experimentations in stem cell research or eugenics growing designer babies yeah i suppose i you mean i know i yeah it could be mm-hmm. i mean all these things are a possibility and that's what makes this such a controversial topic it's something i all right let let's let's take a step to the side here let me ask you this okay let let's start out easy do you believe in extraterrestrial life yes Okay. Have you ever seen a UFO? No. Okay. And those are both my answers as well. Okay. As much as I would love to say I had seen a UFO at some point, I never have. Nope. I've seen weird things in the sky, but then, you know, they fly overhead and I go, oh, you know, kind of thing. So let's talk a little bit about religion. Let's go ahead and get into religion here. Um, You said you had come up with a list of religious societies that have aliens as a base. Yes. So we had the Raelians and some of the other ones um, we talked about. Um, There's an author named uh, Christopher Hugh Partridge who wrote a book called UFO Religions. Okay. So apparently there's enough of them that... It warrants a book. It warrants another book. Uh, Actually, several. Um, There, and it says that most of them arise from... Um, abduction stories. Basically, someone claims that they're abducted by aliens and they're given this message of deliverance of the human race, and so they come back and start a religion. Okay. One of the books that I ran across by Melody Campbell and Stephen A. Kent actually um, focus a little bit on Heaven's Gate and the Order of the Solar Temple as the extreme end of these UFO belief groups. Oddly enough, well, maybe not oddly enough, given that most of these spring up in California and whatnot, but Scientology is classified as a UFO religion. 
I, I get it. Now, let's not mm-hmm. talk too much about Scientology that may show up yep. on our door. Right. <laughs> Basically, what almost all of these have in common is that um, they're started with some kind of abduction incident or belief. Right. And that they, they all come with this element of deliverance. So several of them have proposed various dates for the end of the earth. And every time a date comes and goes and nothing happens, someone from the the cult will come on and say, oh, that was our mistake. We misinterpreted the math from our saviors. It's actually this date. Right. And then that date comes and goes and they come up with some other story. Or they just kill everybody. Or they just kill everybody. Yes. Yeah. So so that, that I looked into, but to be perfectly honest, I found it really depressing. It really is, yeah. Be, because so many of them end up in death. Um, you got to shuffle so, off that mortar coil to become an alien, I guess. Exactly. So the other thing I, I looked at for it, its impact on culture is entertainment. Absolutely. And when I, I thought, okay, I, I'll probably find 30, 40 movies and TV shows based mm-hmm. on aliens and stuff. And I started going through it, and I'm like, holy crap, there's like a hundred, a couple of hundred of them. Yep. And um, so I, I was looking through, and I was looking at some of the ones that I remembered and that, that I liked. And okay. Of course, we've got Star Wars and Star Trek. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we have Stargate and the, the TV series spinoffs, Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, and Stargate Universe. Then there's one from, I believe it was 1980, that I actually thought was really a good movie was Starman with Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I, I'm aware of the movie. I don't mm-hmm. know if I've ever seen it, though. No, but it has this great quote. Je- Jeff Bridges is playing a character who they, they never really define if he is an alien, but he believes he's an alien. He's been sent to Earth to study Earth and whatnot. And he meets this woman, and um, she's teaching him about Earth culture. And at one point, they're driving away from something very fast for whatever reason. He gets in and drives. And she says, you don't know how, you can't drive, you don't have a driver's license. And he says, I've watched you, I know how to drive. And she's like, oh, really? Well, what's this, what do those lights mean? And he says, green means go, red means stop, yellow means go very, very fast. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably an astute observation of most drivers, especially in America. Yeah. So one that everybody keeps telling me I have to see, but I never have, is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, oh, Richard Dreyfuss. It's an amazing movie. Yes, and I love Dreyfuss. He's a phenomenal actor. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to mm-hmm. put together a movie day, and that yes. will have to be one of them that you need to see. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Contact, which we already talked about, and then there's Arrival. There are some of the like old schlocky horror ones, like The Thing. Yep. You have some of the family feel-good ones, like E.T. You have some of the more... Action alien ones like Alien and all of the iterations of it, and right. Predator, and then of course the Alien versus Predator. The Last Starfighter I loved. Okay. Um, it's hilarious. It, it's very tongue in cheek about the whole thing. There's the David Bowie film, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yep. And then there there's some of the funny ones, and um, there are three of them that I really like. There's Galaxy Quest. Okay, Galaxy Quest, it's absolutely a, <laughs> hilarious. It's a it's a rip on like Star Trek, right? But it's amazing. Yes, uh, and of course Mars Attacks. Oh, 
I love you, that movie. Yes, <laughs> you gotta love a, an advanced alien race that's immune to military weaponry, but not to country music. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and then one that I saw when I was a kid and hardly anybody else has ever heard of, My Science Project. Not aware of it. And what I love about My Science Project is there's this high school guy out in the American Southwest. Okay. I, I forget exactly where, but it's in that, like, Roswell, New Mexico, Arizona type thing. And he's a hot rod guy. Okay. He has a GTO that he's looking to soup up. And he decides he's going to sneak into this old Air Force base and go through their junkyard. And he finds this weird craft that's half buried under a pile of, like, scrap plane parts. Okay. And he pulls this oddly shaped glowing device out of it and he thinks it's like some kind of supercharger or carburetor or something and he hooks it up to his car and he ends up doing time dilation things and opening wormholes and his science teacher played by dennis hopper okay actually disappears through one of the wormholes and comes back out dressed like he's back in the 60s and he said i went back to hate ashbury man and He's on a total trip, and he, he goes back into the wormhole because he can't face the man anymore because now that he's been reminded of his true self. Oh, okay, okay. So I mean, it's a hilarious movie, and it, it's it's got enough science in it that it doesn't go completely off the rails as, what were they smoking? Right, right. But they're obviously smoking something because it's hilarious. Right. So, so I think the last thing we need to talk about is this whole idea of like the, the the tabloids and the TV shows that <clears throat> sensationalize everything. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, of course you think of the National Enquirer. Yep. Weekly World News. Weekly World News, and you know, when it comes to TV shows, I think of things like Ancient Aliens. Yep. Though I love the series, mm-hmm. you can't put much salt behind any of it. No. I mean, yes, things they talk about like the Nazca lines in Peru. Right. They're Obviously meant to be seen from above. But they're in Peru. Peru has an awful lot of mountains. Yeah. You can see them from above without being in an off-flying saucer. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things like that. And they they try to sensationalize it because, well, hell, that show's been around for, what, 10, 12 years? Probably at least, yeah. Yeah, it's been a long time. And things like that, I think they hurt what people... I mean, yes, I enjoy them, but... I really want the truth out of it, and it's this episode a lot like one of those episodes of <laughs> of that show. We haven't proven anything. No, we've given you information, we've disseminated information, but we haven't proved a damn thing. However, we've tried to avoid seeming like we've proved something. Correct. We've at least been upfront and saying, "Hey, we don't know." Right, right. But. So those kind of things, take them with a grain of salt, as I, I guess is all I'm really saying, is whether or not entertainment value, they got a lot of entertainment Absolutely. value. Absolutely. Actual knowledge and, and value in that way, I don't think so. They even make fun of it in um, Men in Black. Yes. Which is more of a comedy alien movie, where at the end of one of the movies, one of these agents from MIB, are they pick up the newspaper, or uh, no, National Enquirer, and then on the front of it, of course, is somebody from the movie, and 
and said my husband was abducted by aliens. And oh, I think that's the end of the first one after Tommy Lee Jones's character has been neuralized and they send him back that he woke up from a coma right. and he reunites with the woman he loves. Right, and... So the new Will, Smith. the new Will Smith's character's looking at the at the tabloids and the other the Lin- new um, Linda Linda Fiorentino who was the coroner who kept getting neuralized right. because she was kept finding the alien bodies right and she's like what are you reading the tabloids for and he's like best source of news in the world or in the galaxy or something like mm-hmm. that so they kind of oh, poke fun at him that and way. then there's that great quote where she says the ambassador from so and so wants tickets to the basketball game. And he says, call Dennis Rodman. He's from their planet. Right. And she says, really? Not much of a disguise. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess with that, we'll wrap this one up. We'll, we'll call it a, we'll call it an episode. Um, quick update on Eclectic Media Project. The quick update is we really don't have an update. Um, we've got a few things in the works, but we really haven't gotten anywhere with it as of right now. Um, that will change, I promise you. But for right now, there's not a whole lot there. So if you want to reach out to us, let us know whether or not you like this episode, this type of episode, or not, or any of our other episodes. There's a few ways you can do that. You can reach out to us by email at wanttohearsomethinginteresting at gmail.com or at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. Either way, drop us a line. We'll get back to you. We'll answer your questions. Um, you can give us suggestions for different, um, uh, different episodes. We're always looking for those. Um, otherwise, on Facebook, you can find us at POI Network or at Want to Hear Something Interesting. Again, either way, drop us a line. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And uh, any final words of wisdom, Scott? Live long and prosper. All right. And with that, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next month. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.